0: I want to invite the rest of you to open up to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 51. If you don't have a Bible, there's one sitting in front of you. If you can't understand it, it's because it's our Spanish Bible. Try the other one. Uh, We have two different options there. So uh, if you can't understand it, congratulations, you're bilingual. You know, the song we just sang, this lyric uh, that says, to you our hearts are open, nothing here is hidden, uh, is really applicable to the text that we're going to look at this morning. I'm, I'm forever astounded at, as you read through a book of the Bible, how it touches on all the aspects of life uh, that you're going through. And here's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at um, rejection and insecurities. Now, what I thought was, uh, because I'm a kind pastor, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have rejection issues or you feel insecure. I thought that might be the exact opposite thing of what might be helpful for you. But these are two of the issues that Jesus is going to speak into, how we handle rejection and speaking into our insecurities. Every single person in this room um, struggles with this, has had wrestlings with this. Maybe this is right on the surface of where you're at today. We've reached a milestone in, um, in the Gospel of Luke, and milestones are really important. Uh, one of the milestones in our family's life is the Benicia Bridge. That's because it marks roughly the halfway point between our house and our family's house up around the Sacramento area. And so our kids can know, are we to the bridge yet? And we say, it's 10 minutes to the bridge. And they get really excited because they know after we hit the bridge that we're on the home stretch getting either home or up to grandma's house. Luke chapter nine, verse 51 Uh, the gospel writer Luke is signaling a shift. He's signaling a milestone with this one sentence. Here it is. Luke 9.51 says this. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, that's talking about the ascension, he set his face to Jerusalem. What happens from this point on in Luke is he begins to drive the narrative to the cross, to the death, burial, resurrection, and eventually ascension of Jesus Christ. And it's marked with this idea of he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In essence, this is Jesus' turn toward home. It's the beginning of his end of his time here on earth. We've been looking for a few weeks now at um, some of the things that ail the church. Some of the sicknesses that are pervasive in the church and both those who are Christians inside the church and those who are outside the church can observe these kinds of, of sicknesses. And we sort of went up with this motif of a doctor's note that, that Jesus as the good doctor diagnoses but also provides the cure. He doesn't just say you're sick. These are things that are wrong. He actually prescribes the cure. So very quickly, over the last few weeks, here's the encouraging thing. The very earliest disciples, the first followers of Jesus, struggled with these things, and they had direct access to Jesus in the flesh, teaching them. And so as a disciple 2,000 years later, that we struggle with some of these same things, it's kind of encouraging. Maybe it's discouraging because we haven't grown out of them, but we see ourselves in the disciples. So here are some of the things that Jesus has already been speaking into. He's been talking about not living by your own strength. Don't do ministry in your own strength. Walk by faith. He says this to his disciples, let these words of mine sink into you. It's not enough to hear preaching. It's not enough to preach. It's not enough to read. It's not enough to memorize. When a word sinks into you, it really transforms you. You not only listen to it, you heed the words. And Jesus says that's where life is. Last week, we looked at two things. The disciples had pride. He said, Trade in your pride for humility. Pride is never something I'm with, I bless. In fact, when pride's there, uh, God just kind of steps back. So you can operate in pride for a season, but eventually, uh, if he's not welcome, if he's not invited, he will just sort of step back from that. So he says to the disciples, Trade in your pride for humility. And then he also talks about rivalry. He says, Lay down the rivalry and competition. When you talk to people who are uh, who are accusatory towards Christians, often they say, man, they can't even get along with themselves. One church is fighting with the church down the street. One ministry is arguing with another ministry. And what we looked at was, we say, trade in rivalry for, for cooperation. God is telling a large story. Jesus said this. He says, I'm calling sheep that are not from this flock. That means there are Christians who don't operate just how Neighborhood Bible Church is. There are Christians who don't operate just how Western uh, middle-class Americans operate. God's telling a very broad story, and so to be to be looking for that. Today, we're going to look at two more corrective things. These are attitudes that need adjusting, some assumptions that are just flat-out wrong, and Jesus is going to speak into these. How do I handle rejection? And, uh, and then the whole idea of just our insecurities and wanting security, wanting to say, Jesus, I'll follow you. If you can guarantee, I won't have to dot, dot, dot. That's what we're going to look at before getting to those two very specific things. What I want to do is I want to give a brief introduction in your notes. It just says Luke's travel narratives. What is Luke's travel narratives? Here's what it is. Luke 9:51 starts an almost 10 chapter section in this gospel that is unique to Dr. Luke, as he writes. Uh, Matthew and Mark take two chapters to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. When it says Jesus set his face, or his time had come to go to the cross, they take two chapters to get there. Luke takes ten chapters. Much of what we're going to look at over these next several weeks is unique to Luke's gospel. So it starts with this verse in 951. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. Now, I want you uh, to consider this. We're going to kind of take a road trip with Jesus here, and I want you to raise your hand if, as I begin to read this, you begin to see, yeah, this is sort of describing me. Okay, anyone take a road trip this last summer? Anyone? All right. Anyone wish they had taken a road trip this last summer? Yeah, I love road trips. Let me tell you. uh, Let me let me give a description. You see if you're this kind of traveler. If it is, raise your hand proudly, boldly, and leave it up. Okay. How many of you here are, get there quickly, no bathroom stops, no unexpected detours because it will mess up the carefully planned schedule that I have allotted for this traveling, okay? We got some bold, proud hands up. Leave them up. Now, leave them up if you are married to or have offspring that are dilly-dally travelers. Isn't that beautiful? I got two hands that just went up. One guy had his hand up, he put his other hand up. I, so this makes for family interest, right? Families would be downright boring if we were all the same. I mean, this is what makes the family road trip so spectacular. Uh, these, are the, these, are, these are a whole different description of, of travelers. This is the person who says, we'll get there if we get there, but there are things that I need to stop and see along the way. To which the first kind of traveler says, what things? To which the dilly dallier says, I don't know yet, but I'll know him when I see him. And when I see him, we're going to, we need to pull off. Well, how long are we going to stay? I have no idea. However long is necessary. There might be more things that I need to see there. Again, this, this makes for uh, just really, really fun summers. Jesus fell into the second camp. What I want to show you is this. Here's sort of a here's sort of a rough map of leaving Galilee up in the red area and his sort of meandering journey down to Jerusalem. If you walk that straight and purposefully at a walking pace, I've never been there, but I'm taking Google Earth and other people who know such things. I'm taking their word for it, about three days. It's a three days journey by walking. Jesus takes much longer. And what I want to do is I want to just sort of uh, lay out this idea of a travel narrative because we're going to be on the road with Jesus here uh, for about for about ten chapters. With Jesus, with with the ascension of Jesus, Jesus going back home, looming. It says Jesus set his face. Now I used to love going horseback riding. I still do. I just don't do it very much. Um, and, uh, and my mom used to take me to a place in Half Moon Bay, and we would go horseback riding. We'd ride along the cliffs. And then we would kind of go down this uh, this little trail. And about as soon as we hit the beach, we would we would make a right turn back to the stables. And do you know what happens when horses make the turn back for the stables? They set their face toward the stable. It is very hard to dissuade a rental horse to turn left, to turn right, or to slow down. In fact, one time, my older brother, he's not as good of a rider as me, I watched him right away, and all I saw was the back of him doing this. And I was like, wow, my brother's being kidnapped by a horse. I mean, I didn't know they did that. That's incredible. That's because that that horse had set his face toward the stable. One time, my mom had me on the way home, quite on purpose. She said, I want you to go up and around that tree. You know what she was testing? She was testing to see if the horse was in control of me or if I was in control of that horse. And I'm still proud of this moment. I was able to make that horse who had set his face for the stable to turn around and go back the other way. The horse sets his face toward the stable because he's getting food and rest. Here's what's really, really powerful to see. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem where he knows he'll be betrayed in the hands of sinners, not for his rest, but for our rest. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, not so he can feast, but so that we can be welcomed into the table of God as beloved sons of daughters. For our feasting, it is an act of sacrificial love that Jesus sets his face. And as the anointed one of God, he will not be deterred to the left. He will not be deterred to the right. But here's what's interesting and I want to highlight. He's not in a hurry. He could have gotten there in three days. And so we learn from the master teacher, what is he teaching us, even on the road, even once he turns his face to Jerusalem, what is he teaching us along the way? If you're taking notes, you can jot, you can jot these three things down. Certainly there's other things, but these are some things that I, I found really interesting. One is this. We can learn from Jesus, not just from the specific accounts, but just from the pace, from his pace. What he does, and this is one who's, working, who's walking in Perfect rhythm with the, as, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has time for people. He takes time for people. In fact, most of who we will meet in the next 10 chapters are strangers. So he takes time to interact with people. Some people are approaching him. He's a nomad rabbi with an entourage. So people come up and say, hey, teacher. And he stops and takes time. Other times he seeks people out and he calls out people. And we'll kind of see that as we, as we move forward. But one fascinating thing is just to see his pace. We also can learn from Jesus by the language and methods of speech that he uses. Here's what we'll see for the next 10 chapters. There's almost no formal teaching or preaching. Did Jesus teach in formal settings exactly like we're doing now? Not quite exactly, but yes. His very first act as uh, as a public act was to preach in his hometown church, right? So he taught in formal settings. What we'll see for almost 10 chapters is a lot of conversation. Jesus told a lot of stories. One thing about speech is, we know this as parents, there are times we formally sit down and teach our parents. People ask me sometimes, there's sort of an assumption that if you have a large family that you make your clothes and you're homeschoolers. Um, and that's not really true. We buy our clothes. Um, and, and, but, but, but when people ask me, are you a homeschooler? I tell them, absolutely, of course. But I augment our teaching with the public school system. Like, as a parent, of course I'm a homeschooler. I am teaching my children. And so I'm deeply invested and deeply interested in the things that they're learning. And we have discussions all the time. And there are times of formal teaching where I am teaching them something very specific. But much of parenting, is it not, those conversations just sort of on the way? On the way where? Well, on the way to Target right? On the way to practice, on the way home from school, on the way to a home to a friend's house, just, just on the way living in those little conversations. And that's what shapes and trains. And what we see for 10 chapters here is we get a little peek inside, not the formal scripted teaching times, but the unscripted, unhurried, conversational story tone of Jesus. It's interesting to see what's said, how it's said, and even what is not said. Here's something interesting about the word parable. Literally, the word parable, you know what it means? It's a compound word. It means thrown alongside. So what a parable does, what a story does, is it invites a listener to participate. If I am teaching a truth, if I'm standing in front teaching a truth, I might be just giving information. Well, you have a participation of accept or reject it. But a story is something different. A story sort of invites, invites a listener to participate. Don't we sort of look for ourselves in that story? We go, huh, I used to know a person like that, or I've had that experience. Jesus takes a parable and kind of throws it alongside and gives great power to the listener. What they can do is they can choose to say, huh, nice story, and move on. Or they can choose to engage with the topic or the moral issue that Jesus is stirring up. And so as Jesus is telling parables, he is inviting people in. To, the, to, to, part, to participate. Finally, we learn from Jesus how to journey in unspiritual places between Sundays. What do I mean by that? Well, you think about his Galilean ministry, and you would say that was sacred ministry. You think about Jerusalem and the cross, that's sacred. There are some clearly marked sacred times. But what Luke gives us an account of is this 10-chapter departure and just says, what about between Sundays? What is life like for a follower of Jesus? Not when they're in synagogue, at church, or in their community groups on Thursday night. Isn't that where we spend most of our time? Most of our time is not sitting here in these settings. And so we're going to see like this, this road trip through Samaria is a bit like a metaphor for just sort of our life Sunday to Sunday. When you think about Jesus entering into Samaria, uh, remember that he is walking amidst people who do not share the sacred text that Jesus would look to as authority. Not only that, there are massive cultural gaps. Not only that, there's there's a cultivated animosity to synagogue speech. In fact, anything Jewish customs would have been kind of suspicious and the body language would have gotten a little cooler. There are things that those in Samaria did that Jesus found detestable. And there are things that Jesus held dear as sacred that the Samaritans trampled on. Now, I want you to consider if you regard the scriptures, the Bible is God's word. If some of the lyrics we just sang that, Jesus, you are my one desire, is true of you and you're walking through the Silicon Valley... This road trip, this 10-chapter road trip, is a bit like a metaphor for life. Don't we interact most of the time with people who don't share a sacred text? Absolutely. Don't we walk amongst people who the second they hear sort of any kind of christian or religious ease at all, they're sort of a, oh, you're one of those. You just said, have a blessed day. That kind of, ooh, woo! Don't we have people that 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 do things and say things and hold precious, things that are detestable, according to Scripture. And don't we have people that view the normal practice of Christians as becoming almost criminal? So as we look at this, we can look and see how would Jesus walk amongst people, live amongst people, interact with people who do not share the same value system as he does. In fact, they're, they're, they're opposed to it. Some somewhat openly even. As I took all of this together, what I thought about was this. With the cross looming in Jesus' time really short here on earth, he does exactly opposite what I think most of us would do. If you are leaving your house to your teenage children for the first time and going on a trip, my hunch would be this. You wouldn't tell stories and hope that they got the message. Aren't stories easy to be misconstrued? You would be direct. Listen, here's the rules. Here's the directions. Here's the key for this. Don't forget to bring the trash cans in, whatever it would be. And then as my voice is doing, it would probably raise. It would be intense. It would be very direct. It would be clear. Jesus does the opposite. Walking through a godless place, the Samaritans did not worship the one true God, Walking through a godless place, Jesus turns conversational in tone. He tells stories that, yes, they invite in, but they're not all that clear, Jesus. How do we know the way if you're not going to give it to us straight? So what do we learn from from all of this? Um, That's what we're going to be looking at. All right, let me get into rejection and our insecurities, okay? Starting in verse 52, we'll look at this. Almost before the trip begins, it produces confrontation. There is rejection on the road to Samaria. This is not shocking. In John chapter 4, verse 9, John sums up the relationship between Samaritans and and Jews in a few words. He says this, for Jews have have, have no dealings with the Samaritans. And the reverse was true. Samaritans didn't have dealings with Jews. So if you were to describe it in weather terms, you might say the relationship was, you know, cool to frosty with a chance of deadly thunderstorms. That's sort of, that's sort of the relationship between a Jewish person and a Samaria. And guess what? They share a border, right? So they're right next to each other, They're neighbors. Luke 9.52 says this. And he sent messengers ahead of him. "...who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem." There's that idea again. "...and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, "'Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them?' But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village." Now let's do something for a second. Let's compare and contrast Jesus's handling of rejection and the disciples handling of rejection. What observations do you have? This is a real question where the pastor wants real answers. What do you got? Yeah. They were a little bit harsh. They being the disciples calling down fire to kill people is a little bit harsh. Yeah, absolutely. A little different than how Jesus handled it. What else? What do you see? Their pride was insulted. Yeah, we don't totally know this. I, you know, was this a personal slight? Was it racially motivated? Was it theologically motivated? My answer would probably be yes to all of that. But clearly, they were in retaliation mode. Yeah. What else? Jesus chose not to punish them for something that they needed. Jesus chose not to punish them for something they needed. Yeah. In fact, what was his what was his action? Move on. Yeah. Anything else? I thought about this. Both Jesus and the disciples wanted to teach a lesson. The disciples wanted to teach those Samaritans a lesson. I think Jesus wants to teach a lesson. They are worlds apart. The the material that they're trying to teach and get across is worlds apart. Now, if you are a parent or you have parents, that's everyone in the room. Uh, then your parents either said to you or you have said to your kids, what were you thinking? Sometimes we just do stuff that our our parents just go, what on earth were you thinking? Not long ago, World Magazine reported this guy that, um, that had in his checked luggage at a flight at the Washington Baltimore airport, a shoulder missile launcher in his checked luggage. I've got a military guy nodding his head right now. He's like, yep, that sounds about right. This guy was an active military person he found this in kuwait on the battlefield then he thought i know i'll just check this through the luggage now aren't you glad james and john didn't have access to this they're like let's fire this thing up and just blow some samaritans away what were you thinking checking a missile launcher through your luggage i, I have a sense jesus just i mean it says he turns and rebukes them meaning the disciples what were you thinking that is not the plan i'm the good doctor I have come to help and heal sick people. I've I've come to if they don't trust me as their doctor, I don't wipe them out. That's not the plan. That is not the way of the kingdom. That's not what I am teaching. I think you would agree with me that we live in a retaliation society. Much of the battlefield happens on screens. One network is battling another network about what they say and what they and what they do. Uh, people have Twitter battles all the time, right? Don't Twitter battles sometimes turn into real life and death situations? Yeah. The words and opinions we say, if someone posts something publicly uh, uh, against someone, that person feels the need to to retaliate and sort of get get a jab back, right? We live in a retaliation culture. Listen to James, brother of John, uh, chapter 120. It says this, for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. He goes on to write this in chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, this is not wisdom that comes down from above. What did the disciples have earlier? We just talked about it. They had uh, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And then James goes on to lay out these three adjectives about what that kind of wisdom is. That wisdom is earthly, spiritual, and demonic. What earthly, spiritual, demonic wisdom produces is bitter jealousy, Rivalry, tribalism, and vengeance. Then he contrasts in verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above, catch this, is first pure, now listen to these adjectives, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Here's the question that came to my mind. Is sinful anger with wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic or in sinful anger, how often do people call down the vengeful judgment on God, of God on those who reject Jesus or them? Who was being rejected ultimately? The text says they wouldn't receive him because Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. Ultimately, the Samaritans were rejecting Jesus. As Christians who are called to bear witness of the good news of, of Christ... We are regularly and often rejected. Jesus offers this other way than retaliate. He says, move on. Jesus was rejected rejected at the very beginning. First public sermon was in his home church. They went from like being wowed by him. Wow, this guy can preach. Who knew? He's a carpenter's son. To sometimes between then and the fellowship lunch at the end, they're trying to kill him. Then he's rejected on the cross. In fact, the gospel writers take note of judges professional executioners, namely Roman soldiers, who are marveling at his lack of retaliation. There was something supernatural about the way Jesus died. He did not retaliate in the way that people normally retaliate, and it was taken notice of. Now, Jesus had already rebuked demons and storms, and now he turns to rebuke his disciples. His disciples are displaying demonic anger, vengeance, to people. When you take pride and when you take rivalry and you add vengeance to it, it turns deadly. And what Jesus is doing is he's correcting the misassumption, the wrong assumption that this is how we do things. And I think disciples 2,000 years later are still needing this lesson. Is there a day of judgment coming? Yes. Is there a wrath to avoid? Yes. Are we the judge? No. Today is the day of salvation. Think Noah before the rain starts. Noah before the rain starts is a proclamation of good news. There's salvation. It requires trust. There's rain coming. But we are not to execute vengeance. Romans makes it super, super clear. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Your job, Christian, is not to retaliate. Your job is to move on. Now, let me ask you, how do you handle rejection? Christians don't have the market on handling rejection poorly. How about a personal slight, a racial slur? How about some kind of spiritual prejudice that you might have, intellectual prejudice? You know, what your response, whether externally or or internally, here's what I mean by that. Some of you just put yourselves out there. We already know how you're feeling because you always let us know how you're feeling. You're just that person. We know if you're angry, we know if you're upset, we know if things are good. Others of you, we don't have a clue. That was you raging mad, super happy, and super bored all at once. Like right there, in that five seconds, we have no idea what's happening. So some of you retaliate, and we get it. We see it. Others of you, it's internal. Maybe you've never called down fire on other people in retaliation, but mentally, you've called down fire on that person. You get slighted, and you go, oh, yeah? Your day is coming, buddy. You're going to pay for this. Have a good day, right? So check your internals. I'm not just saying what have you done. What do you think about? How do you handle rejection? Let me throw some things out, and let me submit to you that when you are bumped, what spills out of you is what's really in in you. Sometimes you get bumped from hard times, a really difficult phone call, some storm in your life that comes out of nowhere, but you get bumped when you are rejected. And what spills out of you, sort of your hair-trigger response, is what your theology really is. We have stated theology, I believe in such and such. But then we have functional theology. What do we really believe? How do we really live? Here are a few thoughts I jotted down. Maybe you get rejected and you think this, God loves all and God wants me to love all as well. They're not really rejecting me, they're rejecting Jesus. Maybe your thought is, you know, Jesus was rejected I don't think I'm rejected just in the general category of being a jerk. I think I'm just really trying to love this person. Maybe I'm walking like Jesus. Maybe you're thinking this. I know that I can't possibly and shouldn't, even if I could, force people to trust in God, to believe in Jesus. So you know what? I'm going to honor the, the free choice that's been given to human beings, and, and I'm going I'm to... Turn them over to God, not, not like I had any control of it in the first place. If any of those things are oozing out of you, you ought to praise God for that. That is not how the flesh retaliates. The flesh retaliates, says, you reject me, oh yeah? And there's vengeance often at the very tip, hair trigger of, our, of ourselves. Maybe you think this, I must take vengeance. You're going to pay for this. We'll see in the long run. I mean, whatever kind of internal dialogue or external dialogue that explodes into. And even moving on, can't moving on be the silent treatment? Moving on could be the silent treatment. It could just be, I'm writing you out of my life. That's not love. But moving on in the sake of, look, you didn't have to receive us to provide lodging for us. We'll move on. We're not going to stage a protest and plant ourselves here and make you come around to us. So it's not just rejection that Jesus wanted to correct, but also our insecurities. Let's read on. Verse 57 says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, three people, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, the birds birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Person number two, to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those who are at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What Luke's done is he's grabbed a little assortment of people. And they were either invited to follow Jesus or they proclaimed, I'll follow you, Jesus. And he sort of puts them together. And what we see is this. Jesus is laying out the expectation of what it means to follow. He's outlining, uh, here's what it means to be a Christian. Here's what it means to be a follower of mine. And he's making the expectation really, really clear. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're talking with someone. They ask about your spiritual life and they say, oh, man, I feel this burden of sin. I've not known what to do with it. What should I do with it? You, you, you preach Jesus to them. You preach forgiveness to them. They say, man, I want that. I want to lay my life down and follow Jesus. In fact, I'll follow Jesus wherever he goes. If I'm supposed to quit my job and go move to be a uh, a missionary in Africa, I'll do it. Put yourself in that situation. How do you respond? I think many, many people, I think myself included, would be this. We live in a very post-Christian city. Am I right? If I read my Bible at Pete's Coffee tomorrow morning, I don't get people going, right on, brother. Any of that. I get suspicious looks. Um, we actually had one of our community groups have eggs thrown at them recently because they were just having a Bible study. Um, we don't live in the most f- Christian-friendly space. If someone were to say, man, I'll follow Jesus. I want that. I'll follow wherever you... We feel like this. Fishers of men, right? I got one! And we want to reel that person in as quickly as possible and and just and just like, I think you're supposed to sign a card or something. Let's get you signing a card. Let's Let's get you into a church. Let's get you into a class. Jesus does something totally different. He actually speaks to the cost. Think back to your own conversion if you're a Christian. Were you laid out cost and benefit? I think the tendency, all through my childhood, was to tilt towards benefit. Here's what you get in following Jesus. And the cost is somewhat minimized. We don't want to turn people off. We don't want to discourage people. Jesus actually, this isn't the only place seems to make it harder to believe, not easier. What is he doing? He is setting out expectations for the road trip. If you go on a road trip and you think it's one thing and it's something else, it's going to be a pain a few miles in. Jesus is lovingly being honest by laying out the truth of what it means to follow him. One of the great joys of my life as a pastor is I get to stand with people on their wedding day. And if I ever have a bride and groom that are talking about the wedding either in premarriage marriage uh, counseling sessions or on the big day, I expect their mouth to be sort of dry. I expect them not to always be able to put together cohesive sentences. I expect them to have like little heart palpitations and not knowing what's wrong physiologically with their body. I want a nervous bride and groom. Not because, not because that says anything about whether the person they're marrying is right or wrong. It means they see the gravity of this moment. They are making a lifelong covenant decision to stay married to this person. You know who I'd be terrified about? The cavalier bride or groom. Let's get this thing going. Let's get the wedding going. Let's try marriage. I've tried dating in these other ways. Let's see if marrying one of these can help. Man, that, woo what? Like, I will not be a part of that wedding. I want you nervous because this is a huge decision to follow and be faithful for a lifetime. What Jesus is weeding out right at the beginning is those who are like, man, I've tried other things. Let's try, let's give this Jesus a try. And he speaks to three things that I, I just, they are so pertinent to today. These are insecurities that are the very place God calls us to trust Him. You look at the first one. The first one, Jesus is saying this about the expectation. You follow me? Don't expect a nice, safe home. Jesus was homeless. He didn't have a nice, safe home. To the next person, He says, don't expect a nice 401k. What does it mean to wait till the father died? Well, then I get my inheritance. I kind of get set up financially. Let me hit pause on that. Let me get set up financially. You expect a nice 401k. Jesus was penniless. The last person wanted more family time. There are some people who are like, you know what, the kids are young. Let me me get that settled and kind of worked out first. Jesus was rejected by his own brothers and his own home church. He never took a wife. Jesus is teaching about the kind of relationship he's inviting us into. We're called the bride of Christ. Christians are called the bride of Christ. That means the relationship is this exclusive marriage relationship. What I see with these three is, in essence, they're setting up prenuptial contracts, right? I want to get married to you, Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But I've got to to get this in writing. I've got to guarantee this first. I wonder what yours and mine's I will follow, but let's get this straight first, is. If you want to come and be married to Jesus, but set up prenuptials, he says, I won't have anything to do with that. If you want to be married to Jesus, but you want to kind of date on the side, Jesus says, I won't have anything to do with that. Now, these three things in and of themselves are actually good gifts that in the over generosity of God, we're often blessed with, but we're not guaranteed. Many of you live in a really good safe home. You got to praise God for that. That's not a right. Millions around the world don't at all. So being blessed with that is a gift. How do you steward that? How do you welcome others into that? How do you let your blessing sort of spill out into, in, into, into blessing of those around you? Some of you are set financially. Some of you, do you know if you have the ability even to save and put away, that, that you, you're sort of set apart in a, in a class around the world? So if you have retirement money, if you have savings money that's there either for a rainy day or, or to bless in some significant way that you normally can't paycheck to paycheck, man, you ought to be really grateful for that. And some of you are blessed with incredible families and and spending time together is a joy and you've invested in that and that's a good thing to invest in. But here's the rub. If any one of those becomes the ultimate thing, then that thing is taking the place of God and God will lovingly come and address that. He comes and lovingly addresses these things. I think he was speaking directly to the insecurities of these followers. Let me give you one more example. The rich young ruler comes. He comes, he says, Jesus, what does it take to get eternal life? Jesus says, you, you know the law, how do you read it? This, 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 this. The rich young ruler goes, man, I've done all that since, since birth. Okay, pride might be an issue for him, right? He thinks he's held the law perfectly. Jesus just lovingly says, one thing you lack then, sell everything that you have and give it away for the poor. And it says, the young man went away sad. Jesus did not chase after him. He didn't tackle him. He didn't say, just kidding, you don't need to sell everything, just give 10%. He lets, the man, he lets the man go. What's the man's idol? It's his wealth. It's his money. Now I know no one struggles in the Silicon Valley with this, right? These aren't things we, we think about. I mean, this is what's this is what we this is what's happening here. Is that we can live for these things. And God says, you're missing it. You're living for the short-term game. These things often replace the priority of the Great Commission. They replace sort of what, what we're really here for. And I think that people can get to the end of their life having sought this great comfort and missed the Great Commission. And they just go, man, I've, I've, I've invested poorly. I've invested in the things I, I, I wish I couldn't have. I think what's being seen here too is this, that control and security smothers sacrifice. Last service and this service... We've, we have foster families that are sitting amongst us. These are people who are just taking their home and in obedience and love to God, saying there are children in our county who don't have a place to sleep tonight. They can sleep in our house. We're a safe, loving family, and we're stable, so we'll, we'll give them a place to sleep for however long they need until mom and dad can get their stuff worked out. You know, you don't enter foster care unless you put on the altar some of your security and comfort. You don't sacrifice if security is your number one idol. If control is your number one idol. You do not do those things. There are people who have moved houses, not because it was was advantageous to them financially, but because God felt them being called to a neighborhood where they could be a light. They didn't pick it just on the demographics of what they wanted. They did it on mission. To do that, is sacrificial love. It's what Jesus did. But you can't have that and your control and security at the same time. I could go on and on. There are some of you who are serving people who do not thank you on a regular basis. There are some of you serving people who outright dislike you and you're still serving them day in and day out. You're not doing that because it's comfortable. You're not doing that because it makes you feel good or it makes you secure. You're doing it in response to sacrificial love of Jesus for you. And it's what's bleeding out of you. Let me invite the band to come on up. We're gonna sing a couple of songs, and particularly this first one that we sang. I you know, we put these set lists together, we sort of think through songs, I listen to this song, but first service, it really hit me. I just thought, Man, this, this first this first song we're gonna sing is just sort of a, a neat prayer on the outset of it. I'm rereading Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress has, uh, you know, his name was Graceless, and then he gets turned into the name Christian. He's asked along the way to the celestial city, do you have a wife? He says, yes, I do. Do you have kids? Yes, I do. And they say, well, where are they? How come they're not with you on this journey? And Christian says this, he says, I pleaded with them, and they wouldn't listen to me. And they didn't come. Sometimes we read this, we go, that sounds kind of harsh, Jesus. Like, let the dead bury their own dead. You can't go say goodbye to your family. What's that about? Jesus did not say, bail on your family, stop loving your family. But he says this, your family makes a terrible idol. You put things on them they couldn't possibly hold. And when it says, leave everything to follow me, Jesus is just lovingly setting out the expectation. This is how it works. Come and and die to a self-directed life that you may be born again and walk in faith. I pray this morning as a sort of a deep, sigh-inducing reality that we are accepted by God through Jesus Christ. You know what that makes? It makes the rejection of all others more bearable. And my name's written in the book of life, not because of something I've done or earned or could unearn. It's a set thing. Therefore, I don't need to strive endlessly for the exception, the acceptance of other people. And then as as a beloved son and daughter of God, you know what? You're provided for. So those insecurities, will I have enough? Have I put away enough over here? Am I doing enough in my family relationships? How's that going? Do I have a safe and secure family? I can't believe what just happened in my neighborhood. The SWAT team was down the street. What am I going to do? You're accepted, which deals with our rejection. You're a beloved son or daughter. God's promised to care for you. In fact, here's your only homework this week. Ready? Here it is from the mouth of Jesus. Go and consider the birds of the air. Go and consider the lilies of the field. See that God cares for those things take a deep breath. That's it. Go ponder birds. Go ponder flowers. Take a deep breath. Let me pray. God, I thank you for these formal times where we have set a time aside in our week to gather as your people, to place our attention, our focus on you. Not that it's not there through the week, God, but co- collectively we sing to you. Collectively, we marvel at you. Collectively, we receive from you. God, I pray, as you said to your disciples, that these words would sink into us. God, that they would um, actually come oozing out of us. Thank you, God, for how you have established relationship with us, revealed to us who you are, and that you provide us. God, I pray we would be the most contented, most joyful people on our block because of your great love and provision.